All right, this is Hebrews 2020, We See Jesus, our continuing series in a verse-by-verse and theological exegesis of Hebrews. We are now at Hebrews 7.11, and this is increment 190, 1-9-0. The title of today's message is simply called Perfecting Worshippers. Perfecting worshipers. And we'll take a moment of preparation by prayer. Father, we pray that you will portray your son as your righteous servant today in a way that we will see Jesus with more clarity than ever before. We ask this in his name, amen. Hebrews 7, 1 through 10 is an exegesis of Genesis 14, verses 18 to 20. It has to do with the first appearance of Melchizedek in the Old Testament scripture. Hebrews 7, 11 to 16 is an exegesis of Psalm 110, 4 the second and final appearance of Melchizedek in the Old Testament scripture. As suggested earlier in our Hebrew study, we should make much of these two appearances and note that there are two appearances and only two of this man, Melchizedek, in the scripture. The reason for this is that the Levitical archpriest appeared before the people of Israel twice on the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, which is a day that the Hebrews writer is going to focus in on pretty radically later on in this homily. The Levitical archpriest appeared once before the people, before entering into the holiest place of all, the man-made tabernacle, with the blood of the sacrificial animal, Then he appeared a second time when the offering was completed and he appeared before the people. The second appearance was to assure the people of Israel that the annual offering was accepted by God. And that's extremely important. That second appearing, no doubt, was an occasion of great joy and celebration by all of Israel. Now, Jesus, as our great archpriest, was prefigured in Melchizedek. Jesus also makes two appearances. Unlike the Levitical archpriests, who had to do it annually, make their two appearances annually, Jesus made one offering once and for all, and not just for Israel, but for the whole world of humanity over the course of all time. He did this in his first appearance. Nor did he appear and then enter into a man-made tabernacle with the blood of others, that is, animal sacrifices. He entered into the Holy of Holies in heaven, in a tent, not of this creation, which the Lord pitched and not man. 
He went there not with the blood of others, as the Hebrews writer puts it, but effectively with and by his own blood. We who believe proclaim that his offering was accepted for all of humanity for all of time. This message is not always believed, even among Christians, so-called. But when Jesus appears a second time, all will know that his offering was for all. Hebrews 9.28 refers specifically to the two appearings of our great archpriest. In the first appearing, or we could call it appearance, he, quote, bore the sins of many, close quote, with a clear allusion to Isaiah 53.12 and also perhaps to Isaiah 53.6 and 53.11. Isaiah 53 must be taught afresh in our generation with a view to its universality. For in Isaiah 53.11, the proper translation says that through his experience, meaning his painful ordeal at Calvary, my righteous servant will justify many. That's the verse, Isaiah 53.11, that Paul alludes to in Romans 5.18, where he equates that many in Isaiah 53.11 with all of humanity. That's an extremely important link that has to be explored. Isaiah 53 is not usually taught from its aspect of universality, both the center of our redemption, the sufferings of Jesus on the cross, which are inestimable, and the horizon of that salvation being universal have to be explored when teaching Isaiah 53. And so again, Isaiah 9.28 refers to Isaiah, or Hebrews 9.28 rather, refers to Isaiah 53, verse 12, and also verses 6 and 11. Many in Hebrews 9.28 means all, because in Hebrews 9.26, it says, Christ put away sin, sin itself as an entity. He put away, when he put away sin itself as an entity, he put away my sin, your sin, all sins of all humanity for all time. He put away sin itself by the offering of himself. He did this once at the end of the ages, according to Hebrews 9.26, and we'll explain what that means down the road. Moreover, Paul interpreted Isaiah 53.11 by his experience of a great ordeal, that's the translation of Isaiah 53.11, by his experience of a great ordeal, and that's the experience of Jesus tasting death for everyone in Hebrews 2.9. My righteous servant, says God, makes many righteous. Paul interpreted that as Jesus, the righteous servant, justifying all of humanity once in Adam. Jesus' second appearance, and there are those who would take away our hope for a second appearance of Jesus, saying things like the Baha'i faith did, that he's already come, he's already here, and that's all we're going to get. 
And I don't agree with that at all because the Bible makes very much about our standing with tiptoe anticipation to await the appearance and the epiphany of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And that's Titus 2.13. Also, Hebrews 9.28. His second appearance. He will appear a second time without sin being the issue for salvation. And that's for all who are waiting for him. And that means all, because all are waiting for him, whether they know it or not. We'll explore that again sometime down the road also. So by his experience of a great ordeal, which is his experience of death for everyone as the wages of sin, my righteous servant makes many righteous. And that means all. Once in Adam... Now in Christ, all of humanity, because of Christ's finished work. Jesus' second appearance will be his universal apocalypse. And because we don't equate it to Jesus is already here, every eye will see him. Not every eye is seeing him now, but every eye will see him, even those that pierced him, when he comes in the second appearance. 1 Peter 1.7 compared with Revelation 1.7. There's a couple of 1.7s you ought to hang on your fridge. It will then be the tested faith of all who believe will become evident. I'm going to say that again. The tested faith in that universal apocalypse. The tested and refined faith of those who believe in the course of this evil age will be commended and rewarded and even applauded. For the living God is, quote, the savior of all of humanity, especially of those who believe. Now, once we know that our justification comes not through our personal faith, but through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, and I'm going to demonstrate that again with a hammer this time. But once people recognize that we are not justified by our own personal faith, but by Jesus' faithfulness, they tend to, then we tend to shortchange faith. Here's a piece of advice. Never shortchange faith faith. It has immense value even though our personal faith is not the means of our justification. Faith is not the means of our justification. Yeah. Jesus' faithfulness during his first appearance is that. That's the cause of our justification. But faith certainly pleases God. And God commends faith as Hebrews 11 testifies over and over again. Well done, good and faithful. Or we could say faith-filled servant. Those are words that God himself will utter in the telos of history. No short change of faith is acceptable. Never short change faith or despise its value. 
The author of 2 Peter wrote to those who, quote, received a faith as precious as our own. Notice that. Received a faith as precious as our own, given through the saving justice of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, as the New Jerusalem Bible would put it. Don't miss that. The New Jerusalem Bible, once again, is to be commended for its translation. It says, precious faith. Paul anticipated a crown of righteousness to be given him by the Lord, the righteous judge. Not just because he finished the course and fought the good fight, but because he kept the faith. 2 Timothy 4, 8, 4, 7 and 8. We have faith in what Jesus accomplished in his first appearance. And our faith is also the assurance that he will appear again with salvation for all and with liberation for a groaning and longing creation. There's no real hope without faith and no real love either for that matter. These two appearings are appearances before humanity. The priest appears before Israel. The priest appears before Israel again. Jesus appears before humanity. Not all, but some. In John 1.14. In 1 Corinthians 15.1-6. He appears a second time before all of humanity over the course of all time. Now there's also a very important, we could call it, third appearing if we want to view this intermediary appearing as a third appearing. It's the present appearing of Jesus, not before humanity, but before his Father on behalf of humanity, as he lives to make intercession for us with a view to saving us completely. And by completely, in Hebrews 7.25, is meant to the point of our conformity into the image of God's own Son. Our final salvation, our salvation to the uttermost, is our conformity to the image of God's own Son. Match Hebrews 7.25 up with Romans 8.29, and also take a look at Hebrews 9.24 in connection with Romans 8.34. In a future increment, maybe in the near future, I'm going to marry up Romans with Hebrews. And that's a marriage made in heaven, as we'll see. The restoration of all things, also known as the apocatastasis, includes the restoration of God's image in all of humanity. Ilaria Ramelli, in her masterpiece called the Christian Doctrine of Apocatastasis, wrote this on page 197. She said, another way in which apocatastasis, according to Origen, depends on Christ, lies in the so-called theology of the image, which will be clear to Gregory of Nyssa, too. In their view, the image of God in every human being, Genesis 1.26, can be blurred by sin but never canceled. 
And then she goes on to say, now this too depends on Christ, who is the very image of God. That word image, of course, is E-I-K-O-N in the Greek. Akon. It's found in Colossians 1.15 as well as 2 Corinthians 4.4. I'll say it again. This too depends on Christ, who is the very image of God. Then in parentheses, if the Logos is the image of the invisible God, it is the invisible image and has assumed the whole of humanity, W-H-O-L-E, thus restoring the image of God in it. The theology of the image, expounded by, expounded by Origen and then by Gregory of Nyssa, put forth the notion that the very image of God will be restored in all of humanity and that Christ himself as the image of God in his incarnation actually assumed the whole of humanity, restoring the image of God in it. That Jesus became like the siblings who he intended to redeem and bring into glory, as Hebrews 2.10 puts it, and 2.11, means that in his incarnation, he assumed all of humanity. Now of this, and this is a rarely seen quote, Pope John Paul II, he was friends with Ronald Reagan, they both got shot. Interestingly, Pope John Paul II wrote the following, and I was pleased to quote this in a Catholic church in Florida while doing my mother's eulogy, or at least part of it. Pope John Paul II wrote, quote, the incarnation of God the Son signifies the taking up into unity with God not only human nature, but this human nature in the sense of everything that is flesh, the whole of humanity, the entire visible and material world. The incarnation, then, also has a cosmic significance, a cosmic dimension. That was John Paul II, a pope. It seems that John Paul not only chose to emphasize the sacraments, he also seemed to place some pretty heavy weight on the universally saving justice and love and faithfulness of God. No wonder this quote is relatively obscure because the God of this age wants to blind the minds of people lest they see the light of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 to 4. So no wonder, again, this quote is, I would never have seen this quote or read this quote if I had, not, had I not seen it in Jürgen Moltmann's book. And I have the documentation here, and you'll see it in print. So it seems that John Paul not only chose to emphasize the sacraments, he also seemed to place some pretty heavy weight on the universally saving justice and love and faithfulness of God. So, one can imagine why the powers of an evil age would want him out of the way. 
and why four bullets struck him one day by a would-be assassin. Interestingly, that's my take on it. Others have other reasons to believe why he was shot. I kind of see things from the invisible standpoint of an invisible, ongoing struggle in conflict. In fact, that may be the real reason why on May 13th, 1981, John Paul II was shot four times by Mehmet Ali Agha. M-E-H-M-E-T, Ali, A-L-I, A-G-C-A, who was subsequently, listen to this, forgiven by John Paul and pardoned by the Italian president Carlo Azeglio Ciampi at John Paul's request. Not only forgiven, but pardoned. Now much has been reported about these events, but little has been devoted to John Paul's stance on the cosmic dimension of the redemption wrought by Jesus Christ our Lord. I wouldn't be presumptuous to say this, but I might guess that that quote never was delivered in St. Joseph's Parish in Bradenton, Florida before I gave it in my mom's eulogy. She's probably laughing about that now. And again, I probably would never have heard about his stance on cosmic redemption had I not read it in Jürgen Moltmann. In any case, I think that both John and Paul would heartily concur with John Paul's statement on the cosmic significance of the incarnation of the Son of God. Back to our text. Note the inclusio, quote, in the order of Melchizedek, found both in 711, where it says, and you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, in 717 also. The order of Melchizedek repeated again in 717. So this kind of encloses 711 and 717 in a paragraph with an inclusio. But it also is an inclusio that goes all the way back to 5.6 about the priesthood of Christ after the order of Melchizedek. In 7.11, we have an allusion to Psalm 110.4, which of course is the Septuagint 109.4, and a partial quote of the oath-backed oracle spoken by God to his son in Hebrews 7.17. The quote of the oracle in toto is found there. So let's read Hebrews 7.11. If then, and here's a key word in all of Hebrews, if then, completion is the word. The Greek word, T-E-T, -E, or make that, sorry, T-E-L-E-I, O-S-I-S, teleosis. When a word has the omega in it, the omega is a long O. Omicron isn't Omicron. I hear that mispronounced on the TV all the time. It's Omicron because Omicron is the short O pronunciation of the Greek letter Omicron. If you're going to use the long O, omega, it's the long O. 
omega, omicron. So if you want to pronounce the right pronunciation of an ongoing virus, it's called omicron. Teleiosis is a key word in Hebrews. It means perfection. But it also means completion. I would say that it means perfection in the sense of completion. Remember, there are 56 psalms out of 150 that begin with, in the Septuagint with the Greek phrase eis-to-telos, which is also related to this. E-I-S-T-O-T-E-L-O-S. Eis-to-telos. And that means with a view to the end or with a view to completion, or regarding completion. Hebrews is regarding completion. It regards the completion or the perfection of Jesus Christ in his vocation as great archpriest, and all that that connotes. But it also indicates the perfection or the completion of Christians as worshipers. God isn't after perfect people but he's after perfect worshipers, worshipers who are perfected in their worship to him and therefore thoroughly purged of all idolatry. Now, I'm going to be explaining much more on this because this is introducing and kicking in a subject that's going to come into fruition pretty soon. If then completion was reached through the Levitical priesthood, now notice that this is a an unfulfilled condition. If then completion was reached through the Levitical priesthood and it wasn't, but if it were, for under it the people received the law, why was there still a need for another priest to arise, anistemi, for resurrection, in the order of Melchizedek? and who is not said to be in the order of Aaron. If it was all said and done and perfected with the Levitical offerings and the Levitical priesthood, then why later on in Psalm 110.4 is there a reference to another priest? This priest isn't from the order of Aaron or Levi, but from an order called the order of Melchizedek, Furthermore, this one comes from the tribe of the writer of Psalm 110 named David, who in Psalm 110.1 spoke of his descendant being seated on a throne where God says, sit at my right hand until I make all of your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's speaking of a descendant of David from the tribe of Judah. And to this same person, he says, I swear by myself and will never take it back. You, the same one who is seated at his right hand after the the descendant of David, is also called a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So if it was... If the Levitical priesthood was all that, then why did later God call for another priest after another tribe, the tribe of Levi? Now, I love this because I can just see the Hebrew writer 
using a kind of martial arts, a rhetorical martial arts technique where he takes the energy of the accuser and uses it against him. The accuser says, Jesus can't be a priest. He's not of the order of, he doesn't come from the tribe of Levi. He's not qualified to be a priest. Now, instead of saying, oh, yes, he is, the writer says, wait, you're right. He can't be a priest after the order of Levi, so he is a priest after a higher order and from a different tribe, and so he is an or he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, which altogether is more significant than the Levitical priesthood, which is only temporary because it was given through a temporary law and an outworn covenant. That's where the argument's going here. So again, here's verse 711. Makes, maybe it's a little clearer now. If then completion or perfection was reached through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, why was there still a need for another priest to arise, implication, resurrection, in the order of Melchizedek, and who is not said to be in the order of Aaron? Now, for the first and only time in all of Hebrews, the Levitical priesthood, and you'll see this in print in the Greek, as a phrase, appears and it's right here in 711. Though priesthood appears itself and alone in Hebrews 712 in reference to the temporary Levitical priesthood, and it's that word priesthood, hierosunes, is used again in Hebrews 724 in reference to the perpetual priesthood of Jesus. So there's a comparison between the temporary Levitical priesthood and changeable priesthood and the unchangeable perpetual priesthood of Jesus right here in Hebrews 7. Jesus' priesthood was a priesthood, of course, as we've said over and over and over again repeatedly so that you'll never forget it, a priesthood that was prefigured in Melchizedek and declared to be forever in the oath-fortified declaration of Psalm 110.4. In Hebrews 7.24, incidentally, we have a synonym for that word amatathaton. Amatathaton, I'll give you the English transliteration. Amameta, amatathaton. Amatathaton, or amatathaton, I'm sorry. Amatathaton. We can skip one of these. Amatathaton, A-M-A-T-H. Let me do this again. Can't walk and chew gum at the same time. A-M-E-T-A-T-H-E-T-O-N. Amatathaton, used in Hebrews 6, 17 and 18. We have in Hebrews 7, 24, a synonym for that word. This time, the word is a little bit different but it means the same thing, and it's this word, A-P-A-R-A-B-A-T-O-N. They both mean unchangeable. They both mean perpetual and unchangeable. And so, in Hebrews 7.24, we have a synonym for amatathaton, meaning unchangeable. Jesus' priesthood, as opposed to the Levitical priesthood is said to be a parabatos or a parabaton, 
which also means unchangeable. So let's look at Hebrews 7.24. We're anticipating, but we'll back up again. Hebrews 7.24 says, But he, speaking of Jesus, on the other hand, because he remains forever, has a permanent, unchangeable aperabaton. That means incapable of passing away, incapable of change. And it's descriptive of an unchangeable priesthood, non-transferable also. So, but he, Jesus, on the other hand, because he remains forever, has a, an unchangeable, non-transferable priesthood. The Old Testament priests, the Levitical priests, their, trans, their priesthood was transferable by death. When they died, the archpriesthood was transferable to their son or to the next in line hereditarily. In Hebrews 7.11, the salient theme of Hebrews emerges once again. It's the theme of completion or perfection, teleosis or teleosis, related, of course, to the word tetelestai, it is finished, it is completed, perfected, done. Hebrews 7.11 also alludes to Psalm 110.4, by asking this question, why was there a need for another priest to arise? As shown in Psalm 110.4 in the second appearance of Melchizedek. Completion is a theme that's relevant both to Jesus' vocational completion as the great archpriest. When he said to those who threatened him, the Religious guys came to Jesus, the holy boys, and they said, don't you know that Herod intends to kill you? Jesus said, will you go back and tell that old female fox that I'm going to do cures and I'm going to walk in God's mission and fulfill my mission until the third day when I am perfected, completed. That means vocationally completed as a great archpriest, even though he didn't say it. That's what the implication is. So, so then, and I believe you find that in Luke 13, maybe around 32 if I'm wrong, you can rebuke me severely in a letter that I won't read. Now, consequently, completion is a theme both relevant to Jesus' vocational completion as great archpriest in the order of Melchizedek, but it also has to do with our completion, Christians' completion as worshipers of God. More fundamental than Christian life is Christian worship. I'm going to drop that bomb right here. More fundamental than Christian life is Christian worship. More fundamental and more important even to God than the so-called Christian life is right Christian worship. God isn't seeking perfect people. He's seeking worshipers in spirit and in truth. And those are complete worshipers or perfect worshipers. When it ever comes to Christian perfection, it never deals with the perfect moral development, but with perfection in terms of worship and perfection in terms of love. 1 John 2, 5, John 4, 23, Hebrews 10, 1. So more fundamental 
and more fundamentally crucial and important than Christian life is Christian worship. Because, in fact, true Christian living arises from right Christian worship, rightly directed worship. There's a million things in this world that misdirect our attention to things that we pay more attention to and more adoration and adulation to than God himself. It's the worship of the creature over the creator. It is the lie that takes on a million different forms in our time. The sense that the Holman Christian Standard Bible gives to Hebrews 10.1 puts a sharp point, let's say a sharp edge on this two-edged sword. I'm reading from the Holman Christian Standard Bible, but I'm going to emphasize something in 10.1 of Hebrews. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the actual form of those realities, and I emphasize this, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. When? On the Day of Atonement. Now, you say, well, my translation doesn't read quite like that. It doesn't say perfect the worshipers. No, but the Holman Christian Standard Bible got the right sense, and that's what it means. The literal wording of Hebrews 10.1 goes like this. For the law, only a shadow of good things about to come, and not the actual form of those things, with the same sacrifices that they continually offer year after year, can never make perfect those who draw near. Those who draw near means the worshipers. And the law can't perfect them. The sacrifices offered under the law can't perfect the worshiper. Those who draw near are worshipers. God is after perfecting us in our worship of him. God the Father is seeking people who worship him in spirit and in truth. He is seeking not people who live a certain way, but people who worship in a certain way, which also then yields a life that's pleasing to God. Right worship precedes right living. Jesus himself put it this way, an hour is coming... And now is that the true worshipers, call them perfected worshipers, will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Yes, Jesus said, the Father wants such people to worship him in spirit. And that means in essence, in the heart of their being, in the very center of their being, in spirit. And in truth, and that means in reality, not pretense. The time is now that God wants perfect worshipers. God wants perfect worshipers, not perfect people. The perfecting of worshipers requires the thorough purging of the conscience, another theme in Hebrews. It requires the thorough purging of the conscience. People with guilty consciences aren't perfect worshipers. And they're not, in fact, living the Christian life. It's impossible. 
On this subject, David G. Peterson, in his study on perfection in Hebrews, wrote, quote, clearly the power of a defiled conscience to keep a person from serving God effectively is a fundamental presupposition of our writer's teaching and his teaching on the perfecting of believers. Let me say that again. From Peterson in his work called Perfection in Hebrews, which was well worth reading. Clearly, the power of a defiled conscience to keep a person from serving God effectively is a fundamental presupposition of our writer's teaching on the perfecting of believers. Now, I would say in conclusion to today's message that that's true and that the writer of Hebrews also teaches that the blood of Christ, his atoning death, and our knowledge and acknowledgement of it deep in our human spirit is the decisive purgative element, the purging element of our conscience. The blood of Christ purges the conscience from dead works to serve, and that word latruo means not only to serve, but to worship the living God and to worship him as complete or perfected worshipers. Hebrews 9.14. A purged conscience is a significant part of a purified heart. And as Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 1.5, the goal of all of our doctrinal instruction is love from a purified heart. Love for God, love for others. A purified heart is the essential element of perfect worship and of being perfected in love. We love from a purified heart. Real love, authentic love, comes from a purified heart. 1 Timothy 1.5 And we worship on the fourth level of human consciousness where our purified conscience is found. Father, perfect us as worshipers of you and of your Son and of the Holy Spirit who also deserves our adoration as he who makes our salvation real in an individual sense. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.